Good morning. My name is Caroline and I'm going to lead us through the Bible reading this morning from Daniel chapter 7. Now last week we heard about Daniel being delivered from the lion's den under the reign of King Darius. And in chapter 7 this week it's the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And Daniel has a dream. So Daniel chapter 7 reading from verse 2, Daniel describes this vision. In my vision at night I looked... And there before me were four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Hello, yes, got me. Uh, We just heard Daniel's dream. Um, I wonder, do you have dreams? In fact, I don't wonder, you do. Um, You mightn't remember your dreams, but psychologists tell us we all have dreams. One of my recurring nightmares, um, and I haven't had it so much lately, thankfully, is um, I wake up and um, I've I've got an exam and somehow (laughs) I suddenly turn up And I'm not prepared for this exam and I didn't know it was today or I've studied for the wrong subject or and somehow I'm just not ready. Um, Psychologists, in fact, tell us that there are some common dreams. Maybe you have the exam dream or the failing a test dream. 
Maybe you have the falling dream, which might mean things aren't going so well in your life. Maybe you have the uh, naked in public dream, which means... No, I'm not going to tell you. Um, maybe you have the flying dream, which probably means things are going all right. Um, dreams have this way of taking the noise of the day and distilling some of the key themes... And there's things that we need more time to notice and to process. Some things are more important than other things in our day. And that's kind of what's happening in the second half of Daniel. So chapter 7 onwards is different from the first half of Daniel. In the first half, Daniel interprets dreams, but he doesn't actually have the dreams. The first half of the book is actually narrative. It's like reading a story, and it's a story about a powerful king and uh, things that he does and things that he doesn't do, and it's about Daniel and his three friends and what happens to them and what they eat and what they don't eat. And there are a couple of dreams in the first half of the book, but the dreams are set within a story. Oh, I had a dream. I'm not going to tell you what it is, said Nebuchadnezzar. Who can recall my dream and who can interpret it? And then uh, a couple of chapters later, chapter 4, I had a dream, I was a big tree, you know, who can tell me what it means? And so dreams are there in the first half of the book, but in the second half they're different. They're kind of more scary and ominous, and they're in a genre of literature that we call apocalyptic. Think superhero comics come the end of the world, right? Right? That's kind of how apocalyptic genre works. And it's bigger than just the white noise of the day or what's going to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar next week or next year. Or There are larger themes. There are trends that happen across all of history and all of society. And and we get a sense of where are these trends leading and what's the resolution going to be, right? That's the kind of stuff we're studying when we get into apocalyptic books. Um, Revelations is the most clear example. But there's other places as well. Matthew chapter 24, for instance, Jesus uh, has a sermon that's also in kind of this apocalyptic genre. So that's where we're going to go today. And that sounds like what we just read, doesn't it? All this crazy stuff. Um, uh, But here are the questions that are kind of driving the book of Daniel, because it's still one book. In the first half, we've been thinking about, okay, so... Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego used to live in Jerusalem. They now live in Babylon. Does God still reign outside of his temple, outside of his promised land? It's got a bit of a tweak in the second half of the book. Babylon is just one example. Babylon is a symbol of a nation that is in rebellion against God. But the key question remains, is God sovereign? Is he in control of the nations, even when they are beast-like and they rebel against him. In the first half of the book, the question was, well, if you're in one of these types of nations, how do Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego behave? Whereas now we're going to focus on the other side of the ledger. How do the nations behave when they are in some kind of rebellion against God? So let's jump into the dream. Daniel 7 verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, 
I don't know if you have remembered the kings, but it goes Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar is chapter 5, and then he's murdered because he um, won't acknowledge his pride, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually does. Uh, chapter 6 is the next king, uh, Darius, and that's the lion's den story. And now in chapter 7, we've actually jumped back to the first year of Belshazzar, who was before Darius. In other words, it's not chronological. And that's a bit of a cue for us as to how we're to interpret the book. This is not history written in the order of the events in which they occurred. This is apocalyptic, and the author is choosing to group themes in ways that make his purposes more persuasive. And we're meant to interpret what's going on. Well, Daniel's dream was, and we read it out, but let me give you some pictures to try and help you uh, let this dream wash over you. Because it's meant to engage not just your mind as you think about the content, but you're meant to feel fear and being unsettled because of the content of this dream. Right? And first of all, it's a lion with wings. And the lion stands for an empire. And that has to do with the fact that Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. The second is a bear that's chewing on three ribs. Whose ribs are they? The ribs of the previous beast? Uh, the fourth is a leopard. And the leopard has four heads and wings. Why has it got four heads? And then the last is uh, some sort of a, a scary beast that's got ten horns and then this other horn comes up. Um, and they're all pretty frightening. They're all pretty unsettling. So, as we've kind of read this dream, for those of us who've kind of read the whole book of Daniel, we ought to notice a parallel. Hang on a sec. There's four beasts... And there were four parts to this other dream. We skipped chapter 2, but from your general memory, you might recall that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream where there were four parts to a statue. There was a head with gold and a chest of silver and a torso of bronze and feet of iron and clay. And Daniel can both recall the dream without being prompted and then can interpret the dream. And the interpretation is, this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Your majesty, you're the king of kings. You are the head of gold. The Babylonian empire is the first of these great empires. Uh, after you, another kingdom will come inferior as silver is inferior to gold. And then after that, bronze. And finally, a fourth kingdom, which is not so much inferior, but stronger and it breaks and it smashes everything. Now, if Daniel could interpret this dream back in chapter 2, in chapter 7, he can't interpret the dream. But it seems kind of obvious to us that there are sort of some connections, right? So Daniel can't interpret the dream. Actually, uh, an angel or a messenger comes and interprets for him and says much the same thing. The four great beasts are four kings that will arise from the earth. 
there will be four different kingdoms, four different empires, and they will have various features that are being uh, foreshadowed in these dreams. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So it's not just a dream about four beasts. Actually, there's some sort of resolution. Well, who then are these four beasts? Which kingdoms are they? And if you do your research where most people do their research these days, that would be Google, uh, you're likely to come up with this as a solution, right, as an answer. Uh, the first empire is the Babylonian Empire, and the second empire, well, we know that one because it's actually there in the book of Daniel. Belshazzar is a Babylonian, but then Darius is the Medes and the Persians. So they kind of, it's almost, well, not quite a bloodless, one person's killed, but there's a coup, uh, and the Medes and the Persians take over, followed by the Greeks, which would be Alexander the Great. And you might know that from your vague history that you learnt at school. And then after Alexander the Great comes, the next empire we're kind of conscious of is Rome. And so maybe that's the fourth empire. And that would be the picture that some people say, well, this is what's happening. If you do your research in commentaries, probably a much better place, they will tend to say, actually... The fourth empire is probably the Seleucids, and I'm guessing you haven't heard of them. So, when Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is actually split into four. And one of the four are the Seleucids. And the Seleucids have control of Judea and Jerusalem. And they have a particularly evil king, Antiochus Epiphanes, I think his name is, and um, the Jews rebel, and then he comes and crushes the Jews and kills a bunch of them and sends another bunch off into slavery. And he sets up um, a temple to Zeus in the temple in Israel and forces the Jews to bow down and worship Zeus in their own temple. And these events fit the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. And so most academics note that probably it's this uh, Seleucid Empire that is the fourth empire. Having said that, in a later chapter, but still in the second half of Daniel, um, we start hearing about this abomination that causes desolation. And uh, Jesus will refer to the Roman Empire coming in 70 AD and they completely destroy Jerusalem. And they put salt in the ground so nobody can live there. They, you can't rebuild the city. Uh, and that happens uh, in fulfilment of a prophecy. So then what the commentaries say is that, well, this fourth empire, it's initially the Seleucids, but actually there's a second incarnation of it, and the next incarnation is Rome. Well, if you can have a second incarnation, why don't we have a third and you can imagine where this goes in church history, right? And so you get, for instance, various people saying, oh, well, it's Muhammad and Islam. They are kind of the Antichrist. Or Martin Luther calls Pope Leo X an Antichrist. Uh, and in our day, we might talk about Hitler 
or Chairman Mao or Xi Ping and the rise of the Chinese Empire or the rise of secularism within the West or some people might see the rise of Trump or some people might see the decline of Trump and the rise of Nancy Pelosi who undoes him or it doesn't matter. There's lots of suggestions and they range from the credible to the implausible. Which one is the fourth kingdom? And the answer is, well, perhaps all of them. In some sense, the kingdom is a, is a type. It's a symbol. And you can interpret into this fourth kingdom the possibility that from time to time a worse kingdom will uh, unfold. So where are we at? What's going on in this dream? And, and by the way, with apocalyptic, don't get hung up on the details, right? It's a little bit like your day, which is full of white noise, and your dreams help you distill the key themes. Just try and get a sense of the key themes that are going on. What, how are you feeling moved inside this genre, right? And the key themes, I suggest, are something like this. Babylon will be superseded by another empire, and another empire, and another empire, and Daniel 7 kind of reads, after that, after that. Kingdoms come and go. And these kingdoms, verse 6, have been given authority to rule. So God somehow still allows this kingdom to come, and this kingdom to fall, and followed by this kingdom. And the reign of these kingdoms lasts but for a period of time. All right. The dream goes on. We better read on to some bits we haven't covered yet. There was a fourth beast, terrifying, frightening, very powerful, large teeth, iron, crush and devour victims and trample them underfoot. And it's different from all the other beasts. And when Daniel, and now we're in a part of the chapter we didn't read, when Daniel gets to ask the angel about the interpretation of the dream. He doesn't say, who's the second, who's the third? He goes straight to the fourth. The fourth beast is different. I wanted to know the meaning of this fourth beast, which is different from all the others. Why? Because it's the most terrifying, with its iron teeth and its bronze claws. And he gets what's going. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people, and defeating them. This fourth beast more intentionally and more intensely attacks God's people and it looks like it's winning. What's going on there, says Daniel, and he wants to ask the angel and we with him. Um, and here's a feature of this fourth beast. He will speak up against the Most High. Right? He will overtly take on God. He will oppress his holy people. And he will try to change the set times and the laws. Now, initially, the commentators see this as a reference to he will change the practices and the religious festivals in the temple so that the uh, Jews now have to worship Zeus following a different calendar. But perhaps the Romans do the same. And perhaps in our day, we're conscious that our government is saying, you know, you can't call Christmas Christmas or Easter Easter. Or, and they are playing with the social fabric and somehow undermining and attacking our 
faith heritage in the process. That's kind of what's going on here. That's that kind of notion. So uh, we're seeing another dimension to the dream here. The power, the horror, the fear, it has a climax, right? It's kind of, yeah, there's kingdoms that come and go, but every now and then there's a worse kingdom. And this kingdom intentionally takes on God and attacks God's people. And it may last for, the others last for a time. This one lasts for a time and a time and half a time. It might even actually last longer. This might be something we have to endure for perhaps a few generations. Well, let's read on. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Not the son of man, but a son of man, a human being. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. We haven't met him yet. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we focused on one part of this vision. It's, it's in the foreground. It's these four beasts and particularly the fourth beast who wreaks havoc. But it's kind of like now we've got a split screen and on the other screen there's this ancient of days and a son of man who comes to the ancient of days uh, and somehow uh, that kingdom overtakes this other kingdom that's happening in the foreground. Well, let's read on a little bit more. As I watched this horn, so this dragon, this beast with the new horn, it's waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came where they possessed the kingdom. And then a court sits and the power of this last terrible beast is taken away. And the beast is completely destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven. So it doesn't matter how great the beasts are. It's all handed over to who? To the holy people of the Most High. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and will obey him. So we get some kind of a, a, a resolution. This terrible nightmare has a climax, but the climax is not the fourth beast. It's actually the Ancient of Days who empowers a son of man and who pronounces judgment of this beast. And then when the heavenly court pronounces judgment, the beast is destroyed and authority is handed over and the Son of Man and the holy people now reign. Well, let me just unpack a couple of those symbols. Firstly, the Ancient of Days. And that is a reference to God. And he's called the Ancient of Days because unlike the other kingdoms which rise and fall and their flavour of the month just at the moment, but their power lasts for a time, 
the Ancient of Days has been reigning since before time. He's ancient. His um, throne is constant. And it doesn't matter what's going on in the foreground. In the other side of the split screen, which turns out to now be the bigger picture, he reigns and has always reigned and will always reign. What about the Son of Man? And we as New Testament Christians want to rush in and kind of say, oh, this is Jesus, this is awesome, we know this bit. And the answer is, not quite yet. Just take your time. Um, In the Old Testament, a Son of Man just means a human being. And all of us are in some sense a Son of Man. Uh, But in particular, it's a Son of Man who reflects God's capacity to bring order out of chaos. Uh, Remember, you know, there's kind of chaos over the waters and God brings order in Genesis 1. And notice that when the beasts are wreaking havoc, they're coming up out of the chaos of the sea. And so anytime a human being brings order out of chaos, they are reflecting God's glory and they are being a son of man. They are not listening to the serpent, the beast, and they are not being beast-like and oppressive and bringing more chaos. So there's a, there's a contrast, there's an interplay there. Uh, fascinatingly, when Joseph's ten brothers go to Egypt and they ask for some grain, they're asked, who are you? And they say, oh, we are twelve sons of the one man. So in some sense, Israel as a nation can also be a son of man. But, of course, Jesus calls himself the son of man, the instrument of God's peace, God's order, God's sovereign reign. And so when he's asked by Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus says this, Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Caiaphas asks, and Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm the hero of Daniel chapter 7. Where history is leading is I will sit at God's right hand and uh, God's kingdom will reign forever. And in some sense, he's suggesting that Caiaphas maybe is a bit of a beast in the way that he's behaving at that particular moment. That theme just kind of turns up. All right, last little bit of the dream. What about the sons of man who kind of, sorry, what about the holy ones who reign with God? Where where do they fit? And, And we can kind of fast forward to the book of Revelation and kind of some of the visions we see there. The first one, for instance, in chapter four and five, where... Um, there's uh, God and the Lamb and around that is, surprise, surprise, four beasts and then around that is the angels and all of humanity and they're all worshipping. So in some sense, the resolution is that we get to reign with God in eternity. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, for instance, we get to judge the world and the angels. And that's reinforcing that sense of we're reigning with God and in judging we are declaring righteousness to be enacted, right? Order to be returned and implemented completely. Now, 
I'm guessing some of you are kind of feeling a bit lost in the details, right? So we need to kind of step back and kind of go, all right, what, what do we do with this vision? We've kind of had it wash over us now. What are the themes that we're meant to feel? And, and, and think of yourself as being like Daniel. Daniel's kind of hoping that this is all going to be over soon and Israel gets to go back to Jerusalem. And then he has this vision that actually there's going to be another kingdom and another kingdom and maybe even a worse kingdom at some point in the future. Right? How long, O oh Lord, Daniel is kind of crying out. And maybe we feel a bit of that here and now. Well, let me pull together what I think are some themes that we can make of the book of Daniel and particularly of the second half of the book of Daniel. Here's the first. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, kingdoms wage war against each other, and this happens constantly. Isn't that the news? Right? That, that, that's what's always happening. And if you read history, there's more wars in history than what we're used to. It just so happens that from about 1970 onwards, we've kind of stopped having major wars. Or you might argue, actually, we've changed the way we do warfare. War now happens um, through economic exploitation or through the internet or whatever, however it happens, right? Um, but human history is a litany of dead bodies on battlefields in their hundreds of thousands, and it's constant. And how quickly does World War II follow World War I? And, and, and that, if you read history, is nations coming and going, rising and falling. And so we ought to just expect that. Is China on the rise? Does that worry you? And I want to say to you, well, nations come and nations go. Is America on the decline? Does that worry you? Well, nations come and nations. There's nothing new about this. It's happened all the time and it's always going to happen. Not all kingdoms are pure evil. They're not all as bad as the fourth kingdom, as the fourth dragon, the beast. And Nebuchadnezzar, remember, actually turned out to be a pretty good king for the Jews. And, and uh, a little later, Cyrus is going to send some Jews back and, and fund them to rebuild the temple. And I think the point here is that you don't need to be alarmist about every authority that sits over us that isn't Christian. Somehow, in God's sovereignty, he allows nations to rise and fall and, and some are kind of better than others. But actually, some are terrible. Some are oppressive. Some attack God's people. They speak openly against God. They try and play with the social structures and laws in ways that persecute and discriminate against Christians. And that also happens from time to time. What's going to happen next in Australia? As we kind of come to the end of Christendom and we begin to experience some persecution, you try standing up for something on social media and see whether or not you get attacked. Um, look at kind of what happens to some public Christians. Um, are we going to encounter kind of an average beast or a really terrible beast? And the answer is, I don't know. Could be either. Both happen 
in the cycles of history. And maybe that's got you a little bit worried. You might be thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, what happens if China does this and it gets like this and, and the Australian government responds like this? And I, I was listening to the news last night. It was depressing, not any one story, but combined, the stories were just of a flavour that I thought to myself, this is not news, this is brainwashing. There's a political agenda behind every single story going on here, right? And it was kind of depressing. I just turned the news off. I got sick of listening to it, right? And it makes me worry about where our culture is going. In fact, as I was preparing this series a few weeks ago, I was kind of laying in bed at night. I couldn't sleep. I should have been dreaming. I would have been better off. Um, and I got myself quite anxious worrying about the future of Australia. And I'm thinking to myself, man, the church and my job for the next 20, 30 years and my children are going to raise my grandchildren and, you know, this is all disastrous. And, and I got close to having a panic attack, right? You might think, I think too much and maybe I do. But... Um, you can get quite unsettled and depressed as you contemplate all this stuff, right? Here's what Daniel is saying to people like me. It's saying, whatever happens in the foreground, the ancient of days is in control in the background. And it's okay. When Jesus is on the throne then everything will be fine. That doesn't mean there won't be terrible kingdoms that speak against God and persecute Christians. There will be. And to be honest, we really haven't lived through that. Other places have had it far worse than us. But the recurring theme of the book of Daniel is whatever's going on in the foreground, the ancient of days has always been, is, and always will be the only one who reigns. And alongside him at his right hand sits the Son of Man. And to some extent, we are in a better situation than what Daniel is in exile. Because we live on the other side of the cross and of the resurrection, where sin and death and Satan have been defeated. Yes, he hasn't been thrown completely into the abyss yet. But the defeat is complete, it's, um, it's full, uh, some consequences are yet to be played out. But there is no doubt about the fact that Jesus has won and Satan has lost. And so the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of God. And yet we live in this tension, don't we? Yes, Jesus reigns and yet somehow Satan still has influence and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and some of them persecute Christians and speak up against God. And yet, we know this. We, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. There's a sense of anticipation and hope. And at the end of the prayer, yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. <coughs> and both are true. And that's the tension we live in. And here's the last thought. So, as we live in this tension, what do we do? Well, we do what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego do. We live as a citizen of God's kingdom. We follow Jesus. We don't bow the knee to idols. We bring 
order in whatever realm of responsibility God has given to us. And we do that in a way that reflects God's character and brings glory and honour to him. And as we do that, we trust that God will somehow use that for his greater purposes. So, as we sit in a time of transition, not from a Babylonian to a Persian to who knows what's going to happen after that empire, but from 1,600 years of Christianity to a transition and who knows what's going to happen after this. As we sit in our own season of transition, I want to say to you, the Ancient of Days is enthroned. And whether the next kingdom is okay or it's oppressive, he still reigns. Jesus is coming back. Satan has been defeated Follow him, bring order out of chaos, reflect God's character and pray that Jesus will come soon. Let me pray for us now. God, if transitions between kingdoms made Daniel anxious, some of us are kindred spirits of his. And as Daniel had a messenger, an angel, a word from you that gave him some clarity in the white noise, in the messiness, in the confusion of uh, a frightening dream, we just want to thank you for Jesus, who is the word, who is the lamb who will open the books in the eternal courts, and will institute what is right and will dismiss everything that is wrong and will do so for eternity. But in the meantime, we are grateful, Jesus, that you are enthroned. We are thankful, God, that you are the Ancient of Days who is and was and always will be. And God, we want to be citizens of your kingdom we don't want to have our eyes on the beasts of the here and the now in the foreground and feel overwhelmed and afraid of them because you are greater. You're more powerful. And we are citizens not of this world and its kingdoms, but of your kingdom. And you, Jesus, are our only king and we live for you. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.